0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the gospel of Mark called the way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, friends. Hey, if you don't know me, my name's Luke. I get to lead our spiritual formation efforts here at Cherry Hills. And part of what that means is from time to time, I get to have the privilege of teaching. So uh, fun to get to do that with you and worship with you. This morning. If you got a Bible near you, you can go ahead and pull that out. We're going to be jumping into Mark chapter 10 today. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 is where we'll start. And if you want to grab one of the black Bibles under your seat, that's page 822. 822, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And if you're surprised that we're in Mark, we've been in a parenting series. We're moving back uh, into the Gospel of Mark where we spent time in and out of it uh, for a year plus now. And I hope if you've been with us for a time that Maybe Mark's gospel is starting to feel like an old friend. You you've, you know, you, you leave, you, you say goodbye for a little while, but whenever you get back together, it's like you're just making up for lost time. It feels like no time has passed at all, and it's a reunion, that's sweet, right? So uh, we're, we're jumping back into Mark, and if you haven't been with us, then uh, no worries. We will catch you up to speed, and we'll be able to dive in together. Here's basically what's going on in Mark's gospel. Mark is the... Probably uh, earliest written record of the life of Jesus that we have. So it's a historically important document. But for those of us who are present-day followers of Jesus, we think that in immersing ourselves in Mark's gospel, we're going to be able to encounter Jesus in like living and fresh ways that have power to change and transform us as we meet Jesus in the pages of the text. So one of the things we've been saying each week that we've been in Mark's gospel is this. If you're following in your notes... We're spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. Learning to live the way of Jesus is what we're after here. And where we last left off in Mark's gospel, Jesus has his eyes set on Jerusalem. So he's going to the great city of Jerusalem, and there he is going to meet his victorious and fateful end. But along the way, he's been preparing his, his 12, the apostles, his friends, the disciples, for the surprise, the world upside down fact of his death and eventual resurrection. And so he's been teaching them en route about the surprising nature of the kingdom of God. And so this is a story that we're going to be in today where he's going to do a similar thing and expose them to the surprising, amazing, upside down, seed serving nature of, of life and reality in God's kingdom. Now, before we get to Mark chapter 10, verse 17, I want to set this up by giving us a different story. This is a story that's not in the Bible, but it's a story that comes from uh, Christian history. There's maybe a little bit of legend to it, but it's a really, really cool story, and it's about two monks. So uh, back in the 4th, 5th century, there were, there were two monks, and they lived in North Africa, and there was a younger monk named Abba Joseph. And Abba Joseph, one day, he goes to visit an elder monk named Abba Lot. And so the younger monk, he approaches him and he says to the elder uh, Abba Lot, he says, Father, as best as I am able, in, in accordance with my capacity, I keep my rule. Right? That's a, that's a monastic word for, for his way of life. Right? He, he keeps his rule. And he says, I, I pray, I meditate, I fast a little, I live at peace with those around me. And as best as I can, I try to purify and cleanse my mind from bad thoughts. And so he says to the elder monk, what else, what more should I do? And the elder monk rises in reply, and he lifts his arms and stretches out his hands toward heaven. And just then, his ten fingers became like lamps of fire. And he says to the younger monk, why not? become all flame. It's a cool story, right? We don't know what it means, but it's a cool story, yeah? (laughs) I I just tell you that story, and I'll return to it later. I just tell you that story to kind of have in your back pocket, because that's a story that I think can help us make sense of and interpret an encounter that a rich young ruler is going to have with Jesus in the passage that Mark gives us in Mark chapter 10. And it's going to be a helpful frame of reference for us to interpret and and to encounter Jesus in our own way, uh, the invitation that Jesus gives to this man and the invitation that Jesus still gives to us today. So Mark chapter 10, let's get into this story that Mark tells. Verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Life. That's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, of course, a big part of what this question is asking is, what will it take for me? What, what kind of good work or, or thing must I do? What kind of activity must I be engaged in? What kind of rule must I keep so that I can indefinitely extend my life post-mortem, right? This is, there's, a, there's a duration here. Like, how do I live forever, But I also recognize that in our our modern-day context, many of us are not that interested in that question. That question can feel incomplete or even irrelevant. Um, Many people in our culture today, and maybe this is some of us, we're we're a lot less interested in how to live life after death, and we're trying to figure out how to live life before death. (laughs) How do I navigate this world, you know? How do I live well here and now? But also within that question, what do I do to inherit eternal life is the quantity and the quality element, right? It's not just about how do I live forever, but how do I live well now? And the thing I find really fascinating is that in Jesus' response, we're gonna see an answer to both these things. If you're following your notes, for Jesus, the answer to living well and living forever turns out to be the same. So look for that in this passage. Now, before addressing uh, the man's question, Jesus addresses the, the way that he is addressed. Has that, that confusing enough for you? Uh, so, so Jesus has a bone to pick with the way that the guy addresses Jesus. Uh, Jesus says in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Why do you call me good? Nobody is good except God alone. Now this seems like Jesus is being a little nitpicky, perhaps, uh, and it's, it's a little bit of an odd statement for Jesus to make. I mean, most of us think of Jesus as a pretty swell guy, right? I mean, he's, he's a good guy. So, so why does he say nobody is good except God alone? Is, is this perhaps Jesus saying that, you know, he's not really divine and he's not really good in the way that the man thinks of it? That's one way to read this. But I, of course, I don't, I don't think that that's the case at all. I don't think the inference we need to make is that Jesus is saying I'm not good, only God is. In fact, Jesus never says, I'm not good. He just says, God is good. You could equally draw the conclusion that Jesus is subtly hinting at the man that maybe he is more than the teacher that he's been addressed by. That perhaps if Jesus is as good as the man seems to think that he is, that maybe there is more to him than humanity, though there is that. Maybe there is also divinity. Maybe this is a way for Jesus to suggest, to imply for the man that there's no mere mortal who stands before you, right? Nobody's good except God alone. And I think this is also a way in which Jesus begins to suggest to the man that maybe he has a higher opinion of himself than he ought to have. Because as we'll see, this guy thinks of himself as a pretty good guy too. And so maybe Jesus is undermining a little bit The way that this guy perceives himself and and trying to draw his attention away from his good behavior and the metrics he thinks make him a good person and give him a a, a grounding, a contact with the reality of God's infinite goodness in light of his own so-called goodness, you see? So why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. And then he goes on. In verse 19, it says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now this is a loose sampling of the latter of the 10 commandments, the ones that have to do with loving our neighbor. Teacher, the man declared, verse 20, all these I have kept since I was a boy. All these things I've kept since I was a kid. You have to wonder at this point if the man really believes that no one is good except God alone. That maybe, that's, maybe that's a new idea being impressed upon him. Not that he would not say that out loud, but, but maybe internally, maybe implicitly, in his heart of hearts, he kind of sees himself as, as on equal footing or as, as good enough, right? He thinks of himself the way that most of us think of ourselves. We're good people. I mean, come on. You know, like we we, we mostly do the right thing. We try to, we give it our best shot. You know, we're not out here doing all the big bad stuff. Most people we say, oh, I'm good enough. And we think that when it comes to faith and spiritual life, good enough is good enough. Like, what's the big deal? What more is there? What else could there be than to be a moral, decent human being in this world? Isn't that enough to strive for, to keep the checklist, to follow the rules, to toe the line? Won't God be pleased? Won't the people around us be happy? Won't we be content? Like, let's just follow the rules and we'll say we're good enough, right? Check that box and move on. Most of us don't think of ourselves as perfect people. Not uh, perfect, right? We don't think of ourselves as perfect. We think of ourselves as, as sufficiently good in that way. We're sufficiently good people. And so the man has this mentality of himself and he comes to Jesus and he asks a question that is probably more of a self-validating question than a truly curious question. He, he doesn't expect Jesus to actually surprise him and counter him and call into question the extent, the reality, the sufficiency of his own goodness. But Jesus subtly does. And some people today, we still want to use religion this way. If you're following your notes, some people use religion to assuage their guilt, right? Put a balm on it, put a salve on it, put a bandaid on it. Others use religion to validate their goodness. Some people, you know, they walk around and and they've got a guilty conscience and religion is a, is a tool, is an instrument for you to kind of cleanse the conscience and, and go on about your life. Other folks, you already think of yourself as a great human being. And religion is just that added component that kind of reinforces and validates that self-perception. Well, of course I'm good. I go to church. Well, of course I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, of course I'm good, right? And so religion becomes a way in which we justify ourselves before God, others, and our own sense of self. But neither of these approaches to the spiritual life is healthy and good and mature and wise. You won't start to figure out Jesus until you stop trying to use religion altogether. The man needs to graduate out of this mentality, out of this sense of self, out of this way of thinking about goodness and faith, and and move deeper into what Jesus has for him and the invitation that Jesus is going to extend to him. I also think it's fascinating and maybe worth noting. I don't wanna make too much of this, but I think it's interesting. But after Jesus says no one is good, how does the man then address Jesus? Teacher. He drops the good. Now it's just teacher. We're no longer saying you're a good teacher. It's just teacher. And I think he's drawn the wrong conclusion here. And yet it's the cl- conclusion that many of us come to uh, in our culture about who Jesus is. He's a teacher. You know, he's like a forerunner of MLK and the Beatles and like the love everybody culture that we live in. And so he's, he's probably ahead of his time as, as a tolerant, admirable guy. And he said some really great things and some weird stuff too. Yeah, but I mean, he was ancient, so we'll cut him some slack. But overall, he was ahead of the curve and, and he's somebody we can maybe look up to and find inspiration in. But if that's all that Jesus is, if we approach him the way that this man approaches him is, you know, he's a teacher. He, he's the next guru. He's got some things to say and we can, then if we approach him that way, Then we can debate and we can negotiate and we can pick and choose. And eventually, like this man is about to do, we can walk away from Jesus altogether. Because we don't really believe, and this man didn't really believe, that he had asked the living God a question about the path to eternal life. And if he had really believed that, maybe the way that he's about to respond would have been radically different. But the choice he makes in how to respond to Jesus is altogether tied to who he thinks Jesus is. And at best, he's just teacher, somebody with some advice, somebody with some wisdom. That's not the way that Jesus talked about himself at all. And so we have to grasp this too, that the way that we imagine our life and the way to live well and live forever has everything to do with who we think Jesus is if you're following in your notes, we're never going to abide by Jesus' way of life until we come to believe that Jesus is more than a good teacher. Only when our perception changes and Jesus becomes everything, not just something, are we going to be able to have the power and the trust and the willingness to step into the radical invitations that he has for us as his followers, as his people. And this is why the apostles come to believe, as Jesus intends, that Jesus is eternal life. Notice, I don't say that Jesus offers eternal life, so that's true, but that Jesus is eternal life. John is, is just excellently, uh, he, he words this so excellently, so articulate about this in his own gospel, in the letters. In 1 John verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, He writes, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Did you catch that? He says, eternal life is a title, is a name, is a somebody. It's not a something. It's not an amount of time. It It is a person which we can know and be in relationship with and experience union with. Jesus is eternal life. But when this guy approaches Jesus, he doesn't realize that he's talking to eternal life. He doesn't realize that he's speaking with eternal life. And that makes all the difference in the world. If you're following any notes, eternal life doesn't come from what you do. That's his assumption. It's who you know. It's who you know. So back to the story. The man says he's kept all the commandments since he was a boy. Now, uh, maybe... Maybe he did. I don't know. You know, we, he, maybe he's a little bit of self denial, self you know illusion here. Uh, he, he's deluded a little bit. But let's at least acknowledge the fact that Jesus doesn't say nope. Remember that time you were thirteen? I saw that, right? He, he doesn't take him to count, you know, for all the stuff in his life. He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, you know, make that the hill he's going to die on and like pick this battle. We're just left to kind of acknowledge. Okay, what if? Maybe maybe that's true. Let's let's just go with it. Suppose that he is uh, an incredible, you know, maybe the most upstanding citizen in all of Israel and he is a, a Torah observant law abiding good person. And he's really done his utmost and done exceptionally well at keeping all of the commandments since he was a boy. But even if all that is true, like Jesus doesn't even go there. He just raises the stakes. He just says, let's, let's take this one step further. Let's get beyond of rules you may or may not have kept. And let's talk big picture here. So Jesus raises the stakes in verse 21. And you gotta love how this starts. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. That's the invitation. But at this, the man's face fell, and he went away, sad, because he had great wealth. Great wealth. Now, here's the thing. I recognize in a room like this, uh, some of us have had bad experiences, maybe multiple bad experiences when the church starts talking about money. And right now you're like kind of squirmy and itchy. And maybe for you, this is a little passage that that seems to justify your hesitation and your skepticism and and resurface some of those wounds. Because it can sound like Jesus is saying to the guy, you want to get to heaven, just pay the fee, bro. But there's more, much, much more going on than that. And you may first notice that Jesus isn't looking for a personal collection, right? He's not going to pocket the guy's money. What Jesus is actually saying is, um, we live in a society where there's an unequal distribution of resources and that's problematic. And part of what I'm here to do is to alleviate the suffering of others, not just in the afterlife, but here and now. And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to engage in that work in a very tangible, real way. That's going to even hurt your own bank account and your own sense of importance or significance that comes from how much money you got and what you do for a living or whatever it is, right? You're gonna have to go all in on this with me because this is where my heart is, it's with the poor. So so first, you just notice that, right? This is not Jesus saying, um, you know, if you wanna be on my team, you gotta pay the fine, pay the fee, right? He's, He's talking about distribution to those who have need, to those who have lack. But you also should know this. There's no place in the New Testament where Jesus or any of the apostles you know, chastises somebody in the church for not giving their tithe. The tithe is a, is a 10% gift. It, it comes from the tradition of the Old Testament, right? Like, and, and we don't do that as a church. You're never gonna get a letter from our church saying, hey, only gave 3% last quarter. Let's step it up, buddy. We don't do that, okay? Jesus didn't do that. The apostles did that. That's not the way of the early church. So, so hopefully that's some good news. Like we're not after your money. Jesus isn't after your money. The church isn't after your money. If you've, if you've experienced that, that's an unhealthy and unbiblical um, culture that you've been a part of. And you just need to know that. And there's, that's not the way of Jesus. But you should also know this though too. And here's the, here's the flip side. The way of life, the culture, the practices of the early church and what you'll find in the New Testament It's not that people are trying to live up to a certain rule, like give 10%. It's that they're giving away everything far more that exceeds 10%. And they're giving it to people who have need and they're sharing all their resources. And they're laying aside all their claims to wealth and importance and status and the things that money can buy in order to be a just community that cares for those who have need. They're radically focused on hospitality and generosity and living lives of simplicity. It's in our church what we call whole life stewardship. And whole life stewardship, um, that word whole is important. It, It means not part life stewardship, not some of life stewardship, not compartmentalized life stewardship. It means whole life stewardship. That all that we are and all that we have is for the service of God and others that we share and that we give our time and our talent and everything for the greater good and the work of the kingdom that God has called us to and invited us to partake in. That's what it means to be a whole life steward. So we're not just talking here about writing checks. We're talking about giving all that we are to the mission of God and into the relationship with Jesus in a way that other people are blessed around us. So Jesus' invitation here is not give 10%. It's give And if that feels, you know, hard to you, it is. It is. It's very, very, extremely difficult. It's a high, high bar that Jesus calls us into. And I recognize that. Jesus recognized that. The man recognized that. But it's what he is inviting and calling us into. What does it look like to see all that we have and all that we are as not really our own, but at the service of Jesus, at his beck and call to do with what he wills. Are we willing to open our hands and let go of things, whatever we have, so that Jesus can do with it what he wants, right? Whether it's a kid's five loaves and two fish sack lunch or whether you're a rich ruler and you got power and money and Jesus says, give it all away. Whatever it is, are we willing to accept the invitation that Jesus has for us? It might help us to go that far, to, to go the distance with Jesus if we realize his motivation. It's love. Isn't, I mean, isn't this what Jesus feels for the man? Verse 21 doesn't say Jesus looked at him and was angry because he was selfish. It doesn't say Jesus looked at him and he reviled him because he was self-righteous. Jesus looks at him and he loves him. The invitation that Jesus gives to this man feels like a burden. It feels like sacrifice. It feels like the harshest of all rules and he's already keeping so many rules. And he can't, it's just, it just, it's too much. I can't, I can't carry that load. Why would you give me this, you know, harshest of all rules to follow when I'm already doing all of the things? But Jesus wants him to feel the freedom of contentment and love that this rule keeper is not yet experiencing. And Jesus has a totally different perspective on the man's wealth. If you're following in your notes, to Jesus, right? To the one who's rich, generosity is a burden. To Jesus, riches are the burden. This guy feels like, if I give over all this stuff and if I go here with you, Jesus, and if I do this, where's that gonna leave me? I mean, the weight is too much to carry. And Jesus is like, you have no idea what's weighing you down. You have no idea how free you would be. If you would do what I'm inviting you into, if you would live this kind of life with me, then you would experience the freedom. Then you would be unburdened. If this man would just get out past the rules, past the checklist, past the control that he has on his spiritual life and his money, which are intimately connected as Jesus is gonna show us, then he would find the love that he's always been wanting and seeking and waiting for. This is Jesus' vision for us as well. When we get out beyond just I attend or I give or I serve or I do this and that and X, Y, and Z and I keep the rules and I'm a good enough person. If we get out beyond that, then we can experience the adventure, the radical experience of God's love for us. And then we can participate in profound ways in his kingdom, which is gonna be the most freedom and contentment we can possibly experience in this life. So Jesus calls him out past all of that and into love. But the man walks away because, because the rules are safer, because the rules are easier, you know? It's nice just to be able to say, hey, look, I checked the boxes on all these commandments. Like I'm, I'm doing it, you know? Are we good? That's the attitude. That's the mentality. The rules, they don't lay claim to you. The rules can even, by somebody maybe who's especially virtuous, the rules can even be mastered. But Jesus doesn't want you to master the rules. He wants you to be mastered by love, by him, by his way. And so Jesus invites each of us to be overcome and overwhelmed by love. That's the better way. Let me offer just uh, an example of very practical, related to money and how I'm trying to work this out in, in my own life, right? So Mar and I, we've been uh, looking at houses for a while. We've had a baby, as I'm sure some of you know, and so we're um, trying to add an extra bedroom to the house, right? Like, can we, can we move somewhere in town that maybe we'll have a little more space? So when the in-laws come and visit or whoever, well, they're not sleeping on our couch, right? So we've been looking around for a while, and as many of you, I'm sure, know, it's kind of crazy out there right now. The market's a little wild. And so we've, we've looked at a bunch of different places, and there was one house we looked at uh, several months back, and it was great. You know, we, we liked it. We thought, hey, this, this could work. We could see ourselves here. But it was like right at the tip of our, our price range. And we're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's going to be challenging me tough, right? But it was, I mean, we, we could afford it. It was, it was in the budget. But then Mar and I have a conversation, right? And as followers of Jesus, here's the important thing, right? We're not just approaching decisions about money and our finances with a question of, Well, can I afford it and will it make me happy? There's some better, deeper questions to ask beyond that, right? And so we start having the conversation. Well, if we do this, is that going to inhibit us from being generous in the way that we want to be generous? And you look at the house and you go, okay, it's important to us to show hospitality. We have a lot of students and other people who have come into our house over the years and we host groups and stuff. And like, is the layout of this home, is it conducive for us showing hospitality to people and inviting others in? And we're thinking about, okay, in, in two years, home maintenance costs and inflation, and yada, yada, like, are we going to be able to be spontaneously giving toward people when we'd like to be? Or are we just going to be constrained by the mortgage and the home maintenance and all these other things? So I don't, I don't say that to put us, you know, in any kind of, or just, or just real life decisions, right? I mean, these are the conversations you have with your family, your spouse, you're trying to think through things of, and it's not just, what can we afford? You're wrestling, you're discerning based on the love we have for Jesus and other people and the invitations that he gives to us. Like, What do we want to do here? You know. And so it's all discernment, right? If, if there was a rule, if Jesus had said, um, guys, here's the income um, you're allowed to have. Here's the house you're allowed to buy. Here's the car you're allowed to buy. And here's an inflation calculator from Judea in the year three BC to, right? Like, Maybe that would be easier in some ways and safer, and we know, oh, I'm right. I'm towing the line with what Jesus wants me to be. But Jesus doesn't want us to be doing that. He wants us to step into a dynamic, authentic, real relationship where there's back and forth, and we're asking questions of Jesus and wrestling with things because we love him. We know that he loves us, and he has his, his best for us, and we know that we're supposed to love other people well, and that means being free of attachments to things and stuff. And so we just wrestle with this stuff and we try to discern as best we can. And that's what love looks like. And that's what relationship looks like. And it's what Jesus is calling this man and each of us today into. Can we discern, can we enter into the adventure and the love and the freedom that God has for us? And that sounds good, doesn't it? But you also, let's be real. We sympathize with the guy. I mean, Jesus did say everything. Come on now, everything. Any of us in here taking a vow of poverty? Okay, then you get it, right? I mean, this is, this is a high bar that Jesus has set before this man. Jesus goes for the jugular here, you know? He's, he's like ripping off the Band-Aid. If Jesus was your, your personal trainer, you'd be like running a marathon on day one, you know? I mean, he says, hey, this is what it takes. This is what it looks like to come and to follow me and to share life with me and, and be part of my, my team. This is what it looks like to be part of my, uh, my ministry and to be an apprentice with me. So I know it can seem tough and it is, but here's also what we have to understand about Jesus. Jesus doesn't call you a failure and kick you out if you don't become a saint on day one of your apprentice to, apprenticeship to him. He doesn't say, done with you, failure, bye, and move on, Right? And Jesus also doesn't expect people to come to him pre-sanctified, like, you've already been made holy, you're already a righteous person, welcome aboard. He doesn't have a Jesus dream team of spiritual elites that he's just trying to collect people into. Jesus welcomes and brings into the fold broken people and wounded people and naive people and ignorant people and people who hurt people and people who are confused and people who don't really get it and people who have mixed motivations Jesus brings these people onto his team, but only people who are gonna write that blank check from the get-go and say I'm all in on day one are gonna be able to go the distance and experience the life that Jesus has in store for them. And the rich man, rich as he was, wouldn't write the blank check. And so he cannot be Jesus' apprentice. The rich and the powerful man, he thinks he has a stellar resume, you know, Like Jesus would be lucky to have him on his team. He's such a good person. He's an Ivy league grad, you know, he had a prestigious internship and he was at the top of his class. He thinks he's got a good resume, but Jesus only interview question is how far are you willing to go? And the answer apparently is not far enough. So the man walks away sad because he had great wealth. Now, Jesus wants to ensure that his followers get the point. So then he moves the conversation back to his disciples. In verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed. They're thinking, that's impossible. Jesus, camels, needles, what? And so they said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, how is it that according to Jesus, our spiritual destiny is bound up with our material possessions? I mean, this is bad theology, isn't it, Jesus? Jesus should have told the guy, you know, all you need is grace through faith to inherit eternal life. He should have told that rich man, just repent and be baptized. But we must also realize that to be baptized is to affirm that God has done something impossible in us and that we in turn have surrendered everything to follow Jesus. Jesus isn't saying, be an exceptional rule keeper and that is enough for salvation. In fact, Jesus is saying, even keeping the rules is insufficient. I must have your whole heart, mind, body, and soul. All of you is what I'm after. I love and I approve and I use the, the dictum, right, that we use in theology. I like grace through faith, absolutely. But I am a little bit afraid that we've thought of salvation as something that requires little of us because we know that it's a work of God to do that which is impossible to do ourselves. But that's, that's a gross misunderstanding of the doctrine. Just because it's a work that God does for us, in us, in place of us does not mean that little is required of us. On the contrary, this work of God requires an active embodied trust that goes down into the deepest reservoirs of our souls. This is what Jesus is calling forth in response to who he is and to what he's done. So let's finish the story here. We haven't heard from Peter yet in the story. In a story this long, you gotta have Peter in it, okay? (laughs) Don't make the rules, this is how it is. So verse 28, Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. The many who are first will be last and the last First. But Peter just wants it recognized, you know, we didn't walk away. We we said, yes, we gave it all, right? So what about us? And then Jesus says, very encouraging, right? That the people who've left behind things to follow him will not fail to find those same things, only more so in the present age. Those who lose family in the pursuit of Jesus are gonna find family in the church. Those who lose a sense of importance and identity and work are gonna find that new meaning in the kingdom of God as you become a co-laborer with Jesus. There is a cost of discipleship but the cost is not without its rewards, even in this life. You'll notice that Jesus promises his followers a blessing in the age to come and in the present age. And that's why part of Jesus' answer to the question of how do I live forever and how do I live well are the same, right? That come follow me, surrender all, and we'll experience this together. And the eternal life, the quality of that that you experience in the present will overflow into a quantity of eternal life that you experience in the future. If you're following your notes, when we live according to the way of Jesus, we experience the future blessing of his kingdom breaking into the present. John Northbrook says, eternity is now in session. Well, we've started this thing. It's not a future reality. It's a present reality that we will continue to live in into eternity future. But Jesus is also, you know, not a prosperity gospel health and wealth preacher. He's not wearing a pinstripe suit telling people that your diseases are all gonna be cured, you won't suffer, and you'll get a Rolex at the end of this. Jesus doesn't have that in mind for his disciples. He says, and Mark is the only gospel, by the way, who includes this phrase, and it's because Mark is very passionate about making sure we understand that Jesus is a sufferer, and people who join him are sufferers. He says, along with persecutions, There's going to be hard parts, too, in following Jesus. When you live in ways that are countercultural, when you're going against the grain of the social norms and sliding down the ladder of success, you might get some splinters doing that. And Jesus wants us to understand that. And Jesus himself knows it most of all, of course, right? Jesus is the one, more than any of us can possibly understand, who for our sake and for his own glory and the glory of the Father and the Spirit, gave everything that he had to move against the grain of the culture, surrendered everything in the service of the kingdom for the common good of people around him. And because of that, we get to share in the life that he has for us too. We receive before we give, right? The apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That We through his poverty become Rich. The gospel is all about these wonderful, surprising reversals. That's why Jesus concludes, right? Many who are first are going to be last. Many who are last, they're going to be first. This is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. So in this world where we want going to be in control of our money, in control of our spiritual life and everything else, Jesus calls us to surrender it all and to find life of love and freedom. He invites us to move from managing the checklist, a world of ease and safety, and out like past the breakers into the great unknown of deep discipleship and even self-forgetfulness. So the question I want to just leave us with is, why not become all flame? Some of you, you forgot that I told a story about two monks. Some of you, you've been like biting your nails the whole time. When's he going to come back to the monk story, Okay. Here, here it is. This is, It's your personality. You can discern that for yourself, right? But here it is, right? The younger monk, he comes to the older monk. I do all these things. I keep the rules. I pray. I meditate. What else do I have to do? Unless his hands, they become like flames. why not become all flame, right? The older monk, he looks at this younger monk, right? And he sees somebody who's got his life sorted out. It's in order. And he keeps the rules and he does the things that he's supposed to do. And that's a fine place to begin. Many of us are there as well. I keep the commandments. I follow the rules. I know the truth. And we're good with that. And that feels like a sufficient, like the, the end goal of our spiritual life, what we're all headed towards. And it's a good place to begin, but it's just a beginning. It's not the full extent of the life that Jesus has for us. It's not the full extent of his invitation. And so the abbot invites the younger monk beyond the rule and into the fire. And Jesus invites the rule keeper beyond the commandments and into the uncomfortable unknown of a life of self-forgetfulness. He said, just forget about the things you think you know and the things you think you need, the things that have a hold on your heart. Just let it all go. And you will experience something that I, I can't even explain to you until you begin to move in that direction with me. Let's go deeper into love, and we'll just forget all that runs, uh, that, that lies behind us, and we'll just run forward and keep moving into generosity, into obscurity, into helpfulness, into whatever Jesus has for us. Like Paul ponders, and, and you can go read this in Philippians three. You know, if I live, if I die, it's all good. I just want to be with Jesus, doing what Jesus has for me. And so I'm, I'm far from this place, I, I feel that. And most of us are in fact, and many of us won't even get there for a long, long time. Few of us make it this far in the spiritual life, but it is out there, right? Beyond the horizon, you know, far off the edges of most of our maps where Jesus is saying, go here with me and trust me and experience that it's the best thing for you and for the world around you. He wants to take us all the way there if we'll let him. So for those of you, right? If you become stagnant in your faith, and you're feeling stuck, or I just I'm on idle, you know, I'm in neutral, or maybe you, you've been hesitant to even take that first step, and to like pursue baptism and say I want to join a church and I want to like get in a Bible study. I want to like oh. do this thing. If you've been caught up in, in questions and distractions and whatever else, the question for each of us this morning is why not become all flame? Teams, gonna lead us. Let's sing in response. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.